Cinephile. Oftentimes, we love discussing the Oscars and saying, what's the greatest miscarriage of justice? People love saying, all right, what should have won Best Picture that did? You know, Ordinary People of a Raging Bull, Dances with Wolves for Goodfellas, Pulp Fiction Losing a Forest Gump. Oh, my goodness. Warren Beatty apparently read the wrong name. This is incredible. Moonlight won Best Picture. Cinephile. What do you say to those critics who say, listen, Jerry Bruckheimer's movies make a ton of money, but they lack the substance and quality of classic cinema? No, I make movies for audiences, for popular culture. Same person who likes my dinner with Andre is not going to like Pirates of the Caribbean. They're thrilled to have Jeremy Renner with us. Is there any kind of friendly competitiveness on set with you guys? Cinephile. I think yeah, there's just more uh, suit and The great and lovely and talented Jessica Alba is here with us in the studio. Thanks so much for coming by. Thanks for having me. The great Richard Lewis is joining us. At what point did you find that voice? Did you realize you could channel all this pain into humor? It'd be the Prince of Pain. I was about five hours old, and I was being put down by my family. Cinephile. Does Adnan Verk look like the undercover CIA agent who saves James Bond by killing a crime boss's henchman, smiles wide, extends his hand, and says to 007, Welcome to Tangier. Cinephile, the Adnan Verk movie podcast. I always have to be available between the hours of 10 a.m. and 1 p.m. Eastern because of the Dan Levitard show and the great Allison who is always contacting me because they want to have me on to ostensibly ask me about movies and then cut me off. But the other day she texted, it was a serious note. She said, Dan has not seen Kill Bill 2. Everyone, I'm sure, is aware of the story of Uma Thurman and Quentin Tarantino. And she said he was just looking for some background on the story. And I said, I love the film. I don't remember that crash specifically. But what a crazy story. If you haven't read it, read, uh, read Uma Thurman's story in the New York Times just about um, her relationship with Harvey Weinstein and Quentin Tarantino, which is always, I thought, was a rock-solid relationship. It was not the case. Uh, she goes into detail about a car crash that was um, she endured in Kill Bill 2 and still suffers pain from, and she didn't want to drive the stunt car, and Quentin was aggressive and forced her into it, and it's uh, a really tough read. Also, story about him spitting in her face and using a chainsaw on her. And then Tarantino's response, which you should read on Deadline.com, in which uh, he said it's one of the biggest regrets of my life. And I had driven the car one way, and it was fine. And he goes, I, I, I know this sounds strange, but when you drive it the other way, it was different. And unfortunately, because the lighting was different, we just, okay, we'll flip it around. And obviously, it was a horrific accident. I feel terrible. And yes, me and Uma had a falling out because she thought I tried to kill her. And I said, of course I didn't. And Ethan Hawke ended up flying here in... Uh, he and uh, Uma Thurman were estranged at the time, but he still flew there and confronted Tarantino. Like, what are you doing, man? Like, she, she, she trusts you. And he was like, no, I know. I feel terrible. Uh, and then Tarantino's great. You got to read the deadline article. His quotes, he gets really fired up at the spitting thing. He explains it well. He was like, listen, I was Michael Madsen spits in her face in the movie. He goes, you know, the way Dowd writes this, he goes, it's like this male autourism run amok. He goes, first of all, I love Michael, but he's not going to know how to do the spit properly. Okay. I'm the director. I know how to shoot, et cetera. So it's better for me to do it. And I told Uma, two takes. I'm going to spit in your face. This is how we're going to do it. And that's it. We're doing it two, and that's it. If you want to do more than that, fine. He goes, Diane uh, Kruger in Inglorious Bastards. He says, similarly, there was a scene where she had to get choked. And I said, listen, if you want to fake it, it's not going to look real. Now, I'm not going to get Jimmy the stagehand to choke you because he's going to be scared to death. I'm like, oh, I'm not going to get somebody to spit in Uma Thurman's face. He's going to screw it up. I'll do it. I'm the director. I know how to do it. And we'll do two takes. And if you're okay with that, fine. If you want to do another take, fine. She was like, yeah, it's okay. So he was, you know, very uh, sensitive to this image of now Tarantino as, you know, power-hungry, crazy director. Uh, but there's no question you read it and you feel awfully sorry for Uma Thurman, the fact that she endured that. Uh, certainly, I'm sure as an actor, you always feel like your game, you want to do your own stunts. Yeah, the director wants you to do it, you do it. But uh, crazy story. 
Uh, so check that out. Uh, all right. So I, we're going to get to Ben Lines in a second. Thanks to all those um, for the positive thoughts and uh, thoughts and prayers after my illness. Susan Emery was a huge fan of mine. Was asking what was the steroid I was on. It was prednisone. I don't remember all the details I told last time. I still have the recurring image, though. You know, when doctors are talking, it's supposed to be in a conspiratorial tone. I'll never forget the one doctor saying, well, we should put him in emergency and let's just drain the sucker. Like, that's how you talk about an abscess. Like, let's, let's put him in emergency. And I was like, just let, I got to be ready for the Eagles game, which I was, of course. And of course, we won the Super Bowl. Thanks to Dan. Very classy tweet. Listen, he's a huge Giants fan. It was very nice of him tweeting props to the Eagles, of course, mortal rivals. And Rick Passmore, who, is a guy who's not getting paid and is in dangerous risk of being promoted the way this is going. Because he's tweeting up a storm here. Great tweet about your favorite Winter Olympics movies because uh, we got Cole Runnings, I, Tanya, of course. And you, you quote uh, tweeted or retweeted uh, my Eagles tweet with me and my kids. Molly Karam tweeted that. Listen, if we get Molly on the cinephile train, this this thing is going to go through the roof. So thanks to both of you. Before we get to Ben Lines recapping the films that we saw at Sundance along with the movies that I saw... Uh, and some interviews. Nicholas Cage, Ethan Hawke, Alia Shawkat, Paul Rudd, Louis Sohoyos, James Wilkes. A couple stories for both of you. One, Dan, you'll be so happy. Download the Uber app. You know, this is life-changing. How would anybody not have an Uber? Hey, you download it. I'll, I'll be honest. Hey, I'm going to be honest. I downloaded it. My wife goes, I'll take care of the rest. I think you just put in your email address. You put in your credit card. card. That's right. it. That's By it. the way, a month ago, you, there's something romantic about a guy no, that doesn't no, have Uber. No, no it's stupid. just that person's dumb. Yeah, pathetic. Like, go, go get Uber. Know. Reading awesome. the bound book in, in the yeah. yellow cab. <laughs> no, yellow cab, ridiculous. $4 as soon as you get in the cab. L.A., bam, you type in the address, four minutes away, the number pops up, they have reviews of the guy, there's no tip needed. I'm like, this is amazing. Like 25 bucks at the LAX. Like, this is unbelievable. But you should still tip. No, of course, yeah. The guy said tips encourage him. No, of course, yeah, yeah, What do you mean you don't tip? You don't tip at McDonald's, don't you? So that's one. Two on the flight, saw Atomic Blonde. Stairwell scene, awesome. <laughs> she told me, I go, at what point is it? And you go a little over an hour in, and there is a scene, a short scene on a stairwell at like 40 minutes ago. That cannot be the stairwell scene. And I was, as I've told you guys, so hey, one, hey, I'm in on Uber. Two, now I'm watching movies on planes. If it's free, what the hell? If it's Atomic Blonde, why not? I don't want to pay for it anyways. But 73 minute mark, it's nine minutes. Awesome. <laughs> if you like action movies, watch Atomic Blonde, 73 minute mark to the 82 minute mark. It's worth it. She looks great. Uh, some other stuff there we'll, we'll discuss off where I was not expecting. And I'm not sure how much they edited on the flight, but good action movie. So Uber, Atomic Blonde, and Dan Stanzik saw the post. What did you think? Oh, right up my alley. First and foremost, as a, someone with a journalism background, it's playing to my strengths. We're talking government intrigue. We're talking, you know, the Vietnam War and all that stuff going on. Journalism, all that stuff. Um, I thought it was a little, little much, a little, a little over the top, a little too much by Spielberg. Reporters as heroes. Yeah, yeah, a, a, a little too much of that. Yeah. Hanks, I thought was fine. I, I don't think what? Hanks was getting enough credit. I mean, everyone's yeah. saying he wasn't as good as whoever played Ben Bradley yeah, and Jason all the King's men. Or all the president's men. But I thought Hanks was fine. Meryl Streep, nah, she's fine. Um, but some of the supporting actors I thought gave pretty good performances. Some of our guys. <laughs> I right? was so thrilled you tweeted about you love Tracy Letts' performance. Tracy, <laughs> Tracy Letts, our, our newfound friend. Tracy Letts and our guy Odenkirk. Also very good in the movie. Um, it's, it's worth seeing. It, it, unfortunately, it knocked, uh, Murder on the Orient Express out of the top ten. I know I've been mocked for that, but it's fine. Uh, so the post is probably in there, you know, eight to ten. All right, so it gets to the topic. Kenneth Branagh is going to be upset, but we'll 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 lie to him whenever we get him on here at some point. I'm glad you didn't see the post because, like you said, up your alley. We got Owen Kirk in there, government secrets, and Passmore 
You saw Phantom Thread. What'd you think? I did. Uh, very intriguing. It was one of those ones where, especially when you're thinking Paul Thomas Anderson, you're either expecting extremely intense or he's got a little bit of comedy laid into it. This one was really very much a slow burn, very light on that. And it took me a little bit to get into it. When he finally has the date with her and he takes her up and he just starts going to work, that's when it starts turning for me. I'm like, okay, this guy is psychotic in a way. And then as the movie goes on, you realize that, and I'm forgetting her name just because of on the moment. Uh, Vicky Krebs, the actress. Yes. Yeah. Um, she's psychotic as well. Like right. everyone has a little bit of this insanity within them. And it's all about balance and control of that insanity. And as it went on, it played out tremendously. Yes. Definitely and, a slow burn is an excellent way of describing it. But as a director, you could appreciate stuff oh, like lighting, cinematography, angles. Like it's, an yeah. absolutely beautiful film. But it's still, it's still just under, uh, there will be blood still just under Boogie Nights Rams. I, for sure. Right around Magnolia for me. Okay. It's, it's right in that range of, it's like Magnolia and Phantom Thread 3, 4 interchangeable depending on the mood. So Ben Mankwitz, who we've had in the pod, right? Does a phenomenal job for TCM. I've been de- uh, messaging him on DM and he hasn't responded. So I, I got a hold of Christy Lemire, who was fabulous, by the way, in the last cinephile. Not only an excellent critic, but very patient because we had some technical challenges and she was great. So I text her, I go, listen, can you give me Mankwitz's number? He's not responding to my Twitter. So I said, listen, Mank, I don't know what's going on here. You don't like me anymore. I, I want to have you on because Phantom Thread with the 50s Hitchcock and Rebecca, like you'd be great for our audience. So, so he texted back immediately. He goes, hey, uh, I don't know about the DMs. I may have seen them and forgotten about them or I just missed it altogether. Not sure which one, I'll be honest. He said, but happy to help you out at some point. And I said, did you like Phantom Thread? Like as a guy who knows 50s movies better than anybody I know. And he goes, I liked it, not as much as you, but I liked it. And I'm happy to come on and discuss the Hitchcock. So maybe we'll get Mank on, maybe the next pod before the Oscars, like just like an IA. Here it is. Why Phantom Thread is like Hitchcock movies, et cetera. Uh, but he's great. I'm glad he did get back to me. Also, big news, Cinephile new format coming up. So we're going to have this podcast today, which is Sundance Recap, and then we'll do it the next week on the Oscars. But my supporting players are finally getting the leading man treatment they deserve. Dan is going to have the Everyman segment. So it's going to be, we have to take advantage of his writing skills. So it's going to be a movie he loves, any movie he wants, and he's going to do a written review for it. I know I texted you, Gone Baby Gone has to be the first one, but you've, you have actually have getting a written review of that, which was in our top movies of the century. So you do whatever the hell you want. That's yours. Passport, we need, I think yours is called a second opinion. Is that what we're going to go with? In defense of. In defense of. Okay. It'll be some movie that has been critically pummeled or maybe audiences didn't attract to it and you are going to give a revisitation of it. Lion's Den is going to be a new segment. I threw this one by Ben. He's in. Yeah, he's always got so many stories. Every time I saw him, we just saw Black Panther when I was in LA. Black Panther review coming on the next podcast. I think the people loved it the most. Jamel Hill, <laughs> Amin El Hassan, Ben Lyons, then me. <laughs> If you want to know what, what is your first thought, there's like an embargo on it. Like I was going to tweet. I guess you ever been to like a movie. It's unbelievable. You get the popcorn, you get the water, special screening here on the Disney lot. There's no tweeting. There's no comments till February 12th. I was terrified. Like Maple Leafs, Lions, and they can't do anything. Anyways, Black Panther review coming soon. But, um, so Lions said he's always got stories, right? So Ben is going to have a self-contained segment on Cinephile. We don't, we can, he can, whenever he's filling in on LA 710, he can drop down 10 of these. I don't care if it's five minutes, it's 10 minutes, just stories. It can be particularly noteworthy. Hey, Chadwick Boseman is in Black Panther. I have a Chadwick Boseman story when I interviewed him. Or it can just be something interesting or funny or whatever the hell he wants to do. So coming soon, Lion's Den, Every Man, and a second? In defense of. In defense of. I like the second choice. In defense of. Lastly, before we get to Ben Lyons, Masterclass, Scorsese, 30 parts. 
just flew through that sucker on my phone. Longest parts are like 15 minutes. Uh, like him talking about production design. Shortest ones are like two, two and a half minutes. Do it. It's 90 bucks. Sign up. Get it done. I think when you sign up, you can either get other ones free. Ron Howard has one, and I got early access. I should point that out. I think right now, if you want to get Scorsese's, I think it comes out like, I want to say, like another week or so. But I got early access because I was in so early to sign up for it. Go ahead, Ricky. Well, I got it for Christmas, but I got the annual all access. It's $180. Okay. Same deal, but you get everything. Everything. So we'll discuss the master class in the next one. But honestly, it's great, particularly Marty discussing classic movies. He does like two and a half minutes on Vertigo. That's sublime. He does like a minute and a half on Out of the Past, one of my favorite film noirs, Robert Mitchum. He does two minutes on Barry Lyndon, which I'm not crazy about, but you hear Scorsese talk about Barry Lyndon, and you're like, dude, it is truly a master class. Now it's time for Ben Lyons. Let's talk about the movies we saw at Sundance. All right, at long last, the man himself, Ben Lyons, who is playing hurt right now, at least emotionally, Terrible news about Chris Tepp's Porzingis, so I'm sorry, buddy, but um, listen, what, what what message do you have for Knicks fans right now? For every Knicks fan out there who sheds a tear every time they see a Dennis Smith Jr. dunk on SportsCenter because the Knicks could have drafted him instead of Frank Nilakina, just remember <laughs> that, that Dennis Smith tore his ACL in high school. So if you wanted the guy with a torn ACL in high school, you still got to believe the unicorn, the last Jedi himself, Chris Stapps Porzingis is going to come back even bigger and stronger and more motivated to fulfill his destiny and bring it to... I'm a mess today, Adnan. I'm spinning this as best I can. Stan's going to save you. Yeah, that didn't help. No, no. Usually a drop kick to the groin is what a Sundance drama is, but this is uh, this feels like an extra heavier, more intense version of that. I'd love to say congrats on our Eagles winning. Ben Lines, formerly an Eagles fan. He then renounced his Eagles fandom. And became an L.A. Rams fan. So people have been texting and tweeting Ben, who know him from college and high school, like, yo, congrats to the Eagles. He's like, no, there's no congrats here, right? <laughs> it's been a horrible 48 hours, Adnan, <laughs> to have Chris Saps go down and then to have the Eagles win a Super Bowl after they betrayed me two years ago <laughs> and turned their back on me. Uh, and to now have people like Anthony Mackie and Miles Teller and just people reaching out. And I'm like, no, 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 guys, it's over. I saw a 65-year-old woman throw a beer at a 64-year-old woman at a game once. I saw men urinating in the stands. Like, I'm out. Like, I don't – there's no crab. There's no crab on the crab fries. Like, I'm out of Eagles fandom. I mean, you saw it. You saw men eating horse <laughs> like, like, what better validation for turning your back on a franchise than to see the Ritz Carlton canopy col- collapse in the streets of Phil? I want no part of that culture anymore. So, good for you, Adnan. I hope you feed your son some horse. <laughs> and you guys can really celebrate this together because I'm yeah. in this Ramley. I'm part of the Rams, defensive player of the year, offensive player of the year, coach of the year. The future looks bright in LA. Best of luck to Sean McVay and company. Let's do the movie, shall we? So I've already told the story of the illness. Ben can vouch for the fact I was playing hurt. But the good news is when I would crank up the Advil and Dayquil in the morning and self-medicate, I'd feel pretty good. So the Sundance experience began with me and Ben Lyons. And thanks to Ben for making it happen. From now on, he's known as the genie because you get, he gets three wishes. So he, he got me the Oscars. He got me Sundance. He's going to get me Cannes Film Festival next year. But Hearts Beat Loud, Ben, is a perfect way to start because, as you would mentioned there, a lot of the times these movies are dark and they're gritty and it's painful. And this is a light, good film. It, it obviously has some elements of drama, but it stars Nick Offerman as a music store owner, Shades of High Fidelity a little bit, and his relationship with his daughter, Kersey Clemens. Uh, who's going away to school, but he loves the fact that he, 
she wants to be, well, he feels like there's a musical gift within her. And he obviously has always wanted to have a band with her together. And they record a single together. And lo and behold, it's a hit. And it's a huge song. And what's key with movies like this, it's got to be a good song. And you and I were both tapping our feet once we heard the song because it was great. And uh, I thought it was a fun film. And Kiersey Clemens is terrific. Uh, Brett Haley directed from a script by Mark Bash. Um, I don't know if it got sold or not, but good supporting cast. You got Tony Collette, Ted Danson, Blythe Danner showing up for a couple of days. So hearts beat loud, sweet film, and a nice father-daughter story. And a great way to kick off our Sundance experience because going into the festival, they're all kind of names on a page, right? And you can read the synopsis, see who's in the film, try to get a sense of it. But I've learned long ago, you can't chase the cool out at Sundance. You just got to kind of go with what your schedule uh, offers you. And it offered us Nick Offerman. He was terrific in this film, a really heartfelt, like you said, father-daughter story that also features a great performance from Sasha Lane, who played um, Kiersey Clemens' girlfriend. Yeah. she had two movies out at Sundance, The Miseducation of Cameron Post with Chloe Moretz as well. And Sundance is about discovery. And you discover a Sasha Lane, you discover a Kiersey Clemens, and, and you find these little movies, and, and then you can hold on to them throughout the year. And this one was great, and like you said, the music was spot on. Director Brett Haley last year had uh, uh, The Hero with Sam Elliott at Sundance, so he comes back a year later and, and delivers another great little movie here that I, I really thought was a perfect way for us to kick off our Sundance. So I'm excited for what happens next with Hearts Beat Loud. Excellent. Next film I saw was Monsters and Men. And thanks to the PR team who reached out to me who said, listen, there's a sports theme here. It's directed by a college baseball player. And his name is Reynaldo Marcus Green. Uh, American drama is screened in the U.S. dramatic competition at Sundance. And it's told in three parts, very much ripped from the headlines. Uh, the first section is an African-American man who is uh, killed by the police. The second section focuses on a black police officer and the dilemma he goes and the backlash he faces from his community. And the third part is a baseball player who clearly now uh, Green is inspired by Colin Kaepernick, who decides to take a stand. And even though he's being scouted by these heavily um, hyped teams, he decides to not necessarily sit for the anthem, but start making pleas towards social justice and so on. So it was uh, intense. It was hard-hitting. I thought it was really well-made, Monsters and Men. And it played at the Eccles Theater, which Ben had said to me, oh, I'm so glad you get to see a movie there because, as you had warned me, Ben, a lot of these, listen, it's Park City, Utah, population 100,000. These are not uh, gorgeous multiplexes. These are libraries. You know, These are just temporary movie theaters that they're putting together. But the Eccles is gorgeous. And as you had said to me, imagine if you're an independent filmmaker and you get to show a film here. It must have been an, an enormous achievement. And a huge ovation there. I saw Michael Stuhlbarg, who was one of the uh, he was on the jury. He was sitting close to me. He loved it as much as I did. So, Monsters and Men, really good film. That is the quintessential Sundance experience. Twelve hundred people in that high school theater, um, and uh, like you said, an emotional moment for the filmmakers. Now, at this point in your Sundance journey, like how high on Nyquil are you? <laughs> well, like I said, I find that you know I was I was not exceeding the doses. Like it's you can take I think six Advil a day, and you can take four doses of Dayquil, you know, two doses of NyQuil if you want to push it. So at this point, like I said, I'd feel pretty good for an hour and a half, and then it would just wane considerably. So at this point, on a scale of one to how high, like, like Dr. Dre high, or I guess we have to find a different level of high. I, I was... I was feeling decent, but I was waning considerably. What was the second film you saw? I saw Kindergarten Teacher with Maggie Gyllenhaal. She plays, guess what, a kindergarten teacher. Nice. And she has a passion for poetry. She goes to classes at night taught by Gael Garcia Bernal, who's one of yes. my favorite actors. And she notices that one of her students, a little four-year-old boy, is a beautiful poet. 
I mean, this kid is just knocking out the most thought-provoking, inspirational, really deep, impactful poems. And she starts to become oddly obsessed with her student. And she starts to test out his poems in her poetry class. And what happens is you, you, you get a portrait of a woman who is going through all these emotions and her intentions are, are pure, but are they? And she just loses herself in this student. And it's one of those performances, and it's happened to me a few times at Sundance, where you say, oh, okay, we're here in January of 2018. February of 2019, we're going to be at the Oscars talking about Maggie Gyllenhaal and Kindergarten Teacher. Now people just got to go out and see the movie. It's directed by Sarah Colangelo, um, and it's set in, in, in New York. She takes the ferry to Staten Island to teach in this little kindergarten. And it just, I mean, my mom works in a, in, in a kindergarten herself. She's an admissions director for a school in the Upper West Side. So I know the amount of patience you have to have with these kids and how you can support their families and be invested in them. But my mom's not doing some of the stuff that Maggie Gyllenhaal does in this movie. I can tell you that much. And it's just a tremendous performance uh, from from one of the really the you know great American actors working in the last ten years or so. Maggie Gyllenhaal, every time she comes out, I feel like does something special. So I was really a huge fan. Might be, definitely in my top three for the festival, and definitely the best performance I saw of the fourteen films at Sundance. The Kindergarten Teacher, and and who knows where it goes next. But keep an eye on it. Rave review. Can't wait for it. I saw your tweet right away before I ended up seeing you, uh, before I went in my bunk bed that you said that you should get an Oscar nomination. Uh, it stands like a quibble with one of the great American actresses of the last 10 years. I, I, it came out of my mouth and I thought for Stanzik, he's going to only recognize her from like the Batman movie or something like that. So he's like, wait a minute. That doesn't make sense. But if you think about a movie like Secretary, which I believe she got an Oscar nomination Fader, for, yes. and she pops up in, in, you know, a TV show like The Deuce and she's on in that movie Frank, that strange movie and Crazy Heart. She's incredible. I mean, you know, strange. I'll than- give you crazy heart, crazy Ben. Heart. But other than that, one of the top ten great American actresses in the past decade. Get out of here. Stranger than fiction, World Trade Center. I mean, these are performances that are impactful and they stay with you. And Maggie Gyllenhaal, to me, is in it for the right reasons. When she's doing stage, doing TV, little indie movies. Forget the Batman of it all, okay, Stanzik? There's movies out there bigger than Batman. Passport, big fan of Frank. I, I just see your eyes light up when you- I enjoyed Frank. <laughs> That could be part of the, uh. I'm trying to get the Oscar of. campaign going for kindergarten teachers so my tweet doesn't look stupid 13 oh, months no. later. Okay. That's what we're doing here. I love it. Third movie I saw, The Game Changers. Luis Sahoyos, of course, won an Oscar for the movie The Cove and it stars James Wilkes, MMA fighter who goes on a crusade to find out the myths and expose those about eating meat and where you're going to get your protein. I thought it was terrific as a guy who used to work at McDonald's. Maybe a case sells a little McDonald's, the kids here and there. Definitely woke me up to just all the, like I said, the myths that, that are there and the people that they feature in this movie. So you've got uh, Kenny Stills, a Dolphins receiver. You got Arnold Schwarzenegger playing a prominent role. And he's like, oh, they always told me you got to eat meat, you know, but it's not, it's not true. And, and basically executive produced by the way by James Cameron. Wilkes is a guy who, you know, he won ultimate fighter, elite special forces trainer. He just wanted to find out what is the truth about what he's putting uh, into his system. And obviously now I find we live in a world where everyone's obsessed with their diet and is very concerned about these things. Um, and he goes and just finds the truth, which is that a lot of times the, the best way that he explains it is that, you know, when you're getting beef from cows, you're getting chickens, they're like the middleman. You know, you want to get the protein from the actual source and plant-based protein is the way to go. And he completely revamps his diet uh, and he shows other people that do so as well. In fact, there's this 
uh, Persian weightlifter who's unbelievable. And I'm like, there's no way this guy doesn't eat beef or chicken or pork or something. But he's incredible how strong he is. I'll, we'll tweet out the pictures. I'll give it to Rick. There's a video of him lifting up these guys. It was ridiculous. I had him on hand there as well. But listen, a great documentary, Ben, is a part of a Sundance experience. And that's what this one was because it opened my eyes to something I didn't realize. I thought it was informative. Uh, the crowd certainly loved it, ate it up. I mean, this is a crowd that's, you know, gluten-free and... Uh, vegan and all the rest of it. But honestly, I, I, it made me realize that whatever happens when it comes to diet, you should do your own research. And that I think this documentary is definitely eye-opening. I think it's going to do well when it gets released. The Game Changers, a shocking expose into meat-based protein and what it's all about. And then you know you're at Sundance when you're watching documentaries about Persian vegan weightlifters. <laughs> Didn't see that one coming, huh? Uh, but that's that's terrific. You know, my wife, as you know, is in the wellness industry and mindfulness. And while she's not a vegan, uh, we we do keep a, a household that is conscious of what we're putting into our body. So if we have a steak, it's grass-fed and it's hormone-free and it's lived a, it's a happy life, as Mariah likes to say. So, you know, th- there is something to this that has taken over the sports world and you see it in the Kyrie Irving commercial, Nike commercial, the last question, Kyrie, how'd you get so good? And he looks at the camera and he goes, plant-based diet. And, and for a, a star of his <laughs> level to be endorsing that lifestyle is a huge moment in that movement. And to have a film at Sundance that shines a light on it, I think is great. And uh, boy, you you're, you did a great job of really seeking out some of the sports stories that were out in Utah and, and, and in Park City this year. Yeah, no question. That was one that you're right. Definitely had that sports theme. What was up next for you? Well, I saw uh, a few films leading into Sundance. We can get to those later. The next film chronologically that I saw in our weekend was Sunday Morning, uh, and it was a film called Sorry to Bother You with Lakeith Stanfield, Army Hammer, Danny Glover, directed by Boots Riley. Now, some backstory on this. It's Sunday morning. It's 9 a.m., I'm moving in a little slow motion. Adnan, as as we've heard, is feeling under the weather. I'm feeling under the weather for other reasons. And it's Sunday morning well, at 9 a.m. You, you were hanging out with Mariah's mom because she's well, from Utah. That, that wasn't until, like, you know, till Monday. We're talking, <laughs> this is Sunday morning. Mariah's mom was not out with us Saturday night. I'll tell you that much. Um, but, uh, but, but sorry to bother you. It's a press screening. I figure everybody will get a seat. Now, we come to find out there might be some confusion with which badge Adnan has and he signed up for. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. You'll get in. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. And sure enough, Adnan is the last person in the theater. They close the door on him. He can hear the opening credits, the Sundance uh, teaser that runs before every movie. And here I am thinking to myself, oh, God, here's this guy. He's left his family. He's got. He's sleeping in a bunk bed. He's got every type of disease in his throat. And he's just trying to get in to see this movie at 9 a.m. Please, movie gods, please shine a light on parks and sure enough the the gates open and in comes adnan just (laughs) as the film starts and the film is the craziest piece of insane horrible (laughs) movie you will ever see in your life it goes in the howard the duck category it goes in the cloud atlas uh box set i mean this is complete gobbledygook you did a better job at dinner talking about it than i did so i will let you try to Come with the summary, but all I know is that in the third act, there's an army of horse that try to take over the world, and you and I looked at each other like, what are we doing here? Props to Ben, by the way, for being so resourceful. Once I got put into like the kitty line, he immediately is texting. He's like, all right, here's the PR person. Tell her who you are. If not, just show her your throat. 
If not, there's another movie playing next door. There's a 9 a.m. If you can't get into this movie, it's We're fine. trying here. We're, yeah. we're, we're, we're like Red Panda. We're right. like juggling the plates right. here. You know? Got you a hot tea if you make it in. So he's right. I did make it in right at the good. This movie was so bad. Like, it, it was like, this is the thing with the festival experience. Anyone listening goes, oh, I'd like to go to Sundance. You're going to see some great films and you'll see some absolute abominations. The best way to describe the plot is this. Lakita Stanfield. Yeah, Lakeith Stanfield, by the way, Lakeith Stanfield from Atlanta, from right. Get Out, from a, a ton of movies the last four or five years. Black guy working at a call center. Danny Glover also works there. Tells me, you know, you sound too black. You got to start talking white. And so he starts talking differently. And all of a sudden he starts becoming a huge success. So I'm like, all right. So satire. Interesting social yeah. commentary. Okay. Correct. <laughs> Eventually he gets led to Army Hammer, who is wildly over the top, playing this magnate who is the CEO of a wildly successful corporation. An Elon Musk type, kind of over the top, big media personality. Right. And he offers him this deal where he's going to offer him a ton of money, but essentially he's turning people into horses. A hybrid of sorts, not a centaur, but like people horses. And and he literally he says to him, like, think about it. I'm going to give you $10 million and you're going to have a horse. That was the moment right there. You and I looked at each other and we're like, okay. <laughs> Guys, just real quick, I'm not sure we can say horse in the pod, so there's going to be a lot of bleeping. <laughs> it was at that point that I turned to Ben, and I'm sure you guys have had this experience. Maybe you're watching the movie with a friend, and you go, maybe he thinks it's good. Like, maybe I'm missing it. Maybe, like, I think this is atrocious, but maybe I don't. And I looked at Ben, and he goes, welcome to Sundance. And I'm like, all right, we're, we're on the same wavelength. This movie blows. What are the odds, though, this gets, like, a theatrical release, Ben? Because you know someone's going to say, like you said, it is crazy, and it does have names in it. It might get a release. May It's so out there that it might connect with certain people. I mean, this reminds me of when I would go to the Whitney Museum with my mother as a child, and she'd take me into the experimental video room, and you'd look at a piece of video on a wall that just had images flashing non-sequiturs, and you're just thinking, okay, this is making me feel lonely, or this is made. It was like an art film that was just a disaster of a narrative. Tessa Thompson, though, who plays his girlfriend, who's the performance artist who they throw lamb's blood at, remember right. her? Yeah, yeah. And batteries and cell phones. I know it doesn't make any sense to you listening at home. Yeah. Tessa Thompson's going to be a big star. I mean, Lakeith Stanfield is great and very earnest in the lead role, but just a complete mess. And this is why Sundance is great. So I see this horse movie Sunday morning and then at night I'm at this party and who gets introduced to me is the Keith Stanfield and I couldn't say to him I love your movie it was amazing I, I couldn't do that I can't sleep with myself if I am two-faced like that I just said dude that movie's bad crazy that movie's insane and he's like yeah I read it and I I don't know what happened that was nuts right I'm like that movie's the most wild movie I've ever seen so I feel proud of myself for being true to myself and telling him that that movie was absolutely bad crazy i mean that's something i'll never forget right Adnan? you're no. never gonna see a movie like that again no question memorable experience and like i said listen i've been to tiff many a time the Toronto film festival and that's that's part of the festival experience it is hit and sometimes it is missed what actually is the title of the movie ben sorry to bother you sorry to bother you okay so people when they see it sorry to bother you hey if you want to go for a crazy experience do it i'm gonna fly through a three that i saw which were not great one is called pity the story of a man who feels happy only when he is unhappy, a man addicted to sadness who has such need for pity, he's willing to do everything to evoke it from others. This is the life of a man in a world not cruel enough for him. I saw it before I went to the festival. It's awful. Avoid it uh, as much as you can. I thought it would be good because it's from 
The Writer of the Lobster, which is a movie that I enjoyed quite a, a bit. Great. Now, that's an art movie, a weird movie that's kind of out there, takes some chances, but really brings you in as a viewer. So, yeah, that's a much more successful attempt at, at creating something different. Yeah, this time the director, Babis Makradis, who was the writer of The Lobster, this time directing it and co-writing it, but it was an absolutely terrible film. Also, White Fang, Ethan Hawke fans, remember the 1991 movie? This is an animated movie, so I'm going to go see it with my kids eventually. So now I can just take a nap when I see it with them because I actually saw it properly at Sunday. It's sweet film, nice. Uh, Giamatti, one of the voice actors in it. It's just a solid, sweet film. And um, also Nick Offerman, who was one of the lead roles. It's great. If you love the Jack London novel, you love the animated movie, White Fang. And also I saw Skate Kitchen, which is about a group of uh, young girls who are skateboarders, and it was also a mess. I, I, I future, saw li- future leader of the free world, Jaden Smith, in that movie. That is true, actually. Jaden Smith is in the movie, but it was a real disappointment. Like, I just kept thinking, imagine if Larry Clark was directing this. Like, he would have just upped the ante, director of kids, right? He would have just made something out of this movie. Instead, Skate Kitchen uh, was a real disappointment. So there's three. I want to save some time here. I want to do Come Inside My Mind, the Robin Williams documentary. But, Ben, if you want to fire a few of the lesser uh, movies that you saw. Yeah, The Long Dumb Road I saw before Sundance, a long, dumb movie with Jason Manzoukas <laughs> and Tony Revolori. <laughs> Um, Grace Gunner, Meryl Streep's daughter is in it and kind of changes the tone of the movie. Ron Livingston plays a weird hitman. Uh, it's just a pointless road trip buddy movie. Manzukis is funny at times, but after a while, and Adnan, you're, you're like me, you gotta have somebody you're rooting for. And after an hour and a half of it's kind of like, why do I care about these people? So that one was forgettable. One that I actually really, uh, did not connect to at all was just acquired by Neon, I believe, Assassination Nation. Oh yeah. Yeah, directed by Sam Levinson. He was the writer of Wizard of Lies, the, you know, movie last year uh, with De Niro, uh, yeah. De Niro and yeah, and and it's with Odessa Young, Bella Thorne, my buddy Joel McHale, Maud Apatow, Judd Apatow's daughter and Suki Waterhouse. So like a lot of cool people and sometimes when a lot of cool people get together to make a movie, it's really terrible. It's about the town of Salem and how they're taken over by social media scandal and what ultimately happens is a giant bloodbath with women in bikinis shooting AK-47s to God bless America. So I don't know how we got there, but it was one of the more talked about films of the festival. Assassination Nation. Didn't care for it. Um, also wow. was really disappointed. Um, well, Sorry actually, to interject, no. Ben. Just, you're right, though. Yeah, I'm, I'm reading. Aggressive thriller about misogyny and social media antics went for an impressive $10 million. $10 million? The- what are we doing doing podcasts, Adnan? We got to go make a shitty movie and sell it at Sundance. <laughs> um, uh, I was disappointed too with I think we're alone now. This is from director Reed Morano, uh, Reed Moreno, who has done the Handmaid's Tales episode. So she's really talked about and is a visionary. Some striking images of apocalyptic society now, where Peter Dinklage is kind of like the last man on earth, and nice. he's going through his this little town, cleaning out each house of dead bodies, of batteries, and he stumbles upon uh, L. Fanning who is terrific as always. And the two of them form a little buddy relationship, but ultimately the third act with your buddy, Paul Giamatti, who I think nice. had three movies at Sundance. Um, it didn't really pay off or come together. So I love apocalyptic movies, end of the world movies. Um, but I think we're alone now. Missed the mark. So I was disappointed by that. By the way, can you please explain now when you and I make that joke to each other, pulling a Giamatti, what that will be referring to? <laughs> 
So the first arrivals uh, line we covered at Sundance was for The Catcher is a Spy, the story of Mo Berg, uh, play, uh, played by Paul Rudd, and it's Paul Rudd, Paul Giamatti, directed by Ben Lewin. So we're all excited. We get there early. We're on the red carpet. We're waiting for the stars to come out. Sure enough, they start to come out and take photos. There's Giamatti. There's Paul Rudd. This is a small movie, so there's a million producers. They all take a photo together. And we're waiting for the interviews to start. And then Rudd kind of walks over and he starts doing some interviews and we're waiting for Giamatti. And then all of a sudden he's gone. He's ghosted us. He just disappeared. So anytime now, I mean, some people say it's an Irish goodbye. If you're at a party, oh, and you yes. don't want to say, hey, we're leaving now. Or, we, you know, it kind of takes the air out of the room. You just dip out. You just pull a Giamatti. You just don't do interviews. You just slowly slip away. And all of a sudden you're left with Paul Rudd. And that's it after an hour and a half. So, By the way, Rudd loves you. As soon as he saw you, he lit up. His uh, PR people love you. I mean, it was good. You guys have a good relationship with him. I was on the set of I Love You, Man. I was on the set of Role Models. You know, I, he, he went through a run there from like 08 to, you know, 2012, where he was cranking out four or five movies a year. Um, and uh, yeah, so we got a great Paul Rudd interview, which you'll be able to listen to in another episode of Cinephile. But unfortunately, no Giamatti this year. And I could tell you were bummed. It was yeah. like the first night. You've been waiting an hour. You you got your Giamatti <laughs> questions ready to go. And no, I'm just take some photos and go inside. Yeah, I always even ask you, like, how do we ask about his dad doing it in a nice way? Okay, bring up baseball. I don't even like baseball. Okay, what's the best sideways question I can do? Yeah, all for not. By the way, I teased at the top of the show. Lion's Den, which is your segment coming soon. So what a future Lion's Den segment, you and Paul Rudd on the set of role models. We look forward to that. I got a, I do have a, my first Lion's Den in the can already. Last night I hosted a screening of Icarus with the director Brian Fogel. It's nominated for best director. Just saw it. Nice. Stanzik, I'm going to email you the audio file and nice. put that on the show. So Beautiful. We're, all, we're off and running. Okay, good. Lion's Den coming soon. I can't wait. Uh, last one for me, Ben. I want to talk with the Robin Williams documentary called Come Inside My Mind. Uh, and you and I had talked this before. There's always a trick with the festival. Do you see the movie that you know you're going to see eventually? Because it's going to be on HBO. Or, as you said to me, I just think it'll be a good watch. And I just said, yeah, you know what? It's Saturday morning. I really love Robin Williams. HBO does great documentaries. Sure, I could see some, you know, film that's a little offbeat and different but i just want to know this is something that i know i'm going to get this is like the equivalent of watching a Bruckheimer movie at, at sundance you're like yeah this is gonna be a solid entertaining movie i know it's gonna be fun that's a great comparison by the way it's something <laughs> i'm gonna steal for years to come that's exactly what this is right so i go in there and it was fabulous and think about this challenge dan ricky ben you've got robin williams comedic icon acting giant and i've got to put his entire film in 105 minutes I mean, that's incredible that the way they, they, the director, Marina, Marina Zendinovich, who we're going to try to get at some point on Cinephile, and the way she just picks out all these clips and which ones to choose and which ones not to, and how many interviews you're going to do. Um, Will Reeve, who works here at ESPN, his dad, Christopher Reeve, the great late actor, was very close with Robin. They went to Juilliard together. So Will texted me immediately and said, how was the movie I saw? It was incredible. I, I mean, I love Robin Williams, and the film is such a great tribute to him and his humor and his sadness and his depression. And Will said, I was going to be featured in there, but they didn't have Zelda, which is Robin Williams' sister. So then I figured if they weren't interviewing her and some of the family, I didn't want to be daughter. either. His daughter. daughter sorry. Um, and uh, I said, well, they did mention your dad, though. Of course, they mentioned Juilliard and Superman and all the rest of it. He's like, oh, it's cool. I can't wait to see it. Um, but yeah, I just, listen, Mork and Mindy predates the four of us. And I, you know, I know it tangentially, but when you actually see clips of it, you're like, it's pretty funny for its, for its time. The fact that it holds Nanu, up. Nanu, Nanu. Right, exactly. When I was a kid, Nanu, Nanu. The standup is insane. Like, imagine being in Robin Williams' spray. His standup was unbelievable. And when Letterman talks about it, he goes like, you're at the comedy store, you got all these different comedians. 
And when Robin was doing it, it was so different. Like he, it wasn't just he was talking fast. It was so stream of consciousness. Like nobody could channel what he was doing. He was just so fevered and so energetic. And he goes, and he loved it. And his son at one point says, he goes, it wasn't, listen, when he was home, he was quiet and he was introverted and he liked taking bike rides and he loved San Francisco and Marin County. But it's not that he didn't love being Robin Williams. It wasn't one of those that, oh, I've got to go put on the hat and do the shtick again. Like, no, he loved doing that. He loved it. But then when he was off, it was just like, all right, let's just discharge emotionally and be who we are. But he loved that he had that freedom to do it. And even the director, Mark Romanek of One Hour Photo, which is a terrific family, plays Cy the Photo Guy, a dark, chilling thriller, independent film. And he goes, Robin just, he had to be that guy off air. Like, it's like he it just had to come out of him. Like, it was just all this manic energy. So he'd be goofing around being funny. And then it was like, all right, action. And boom, he'd go back to being this very quiet, still creepy character and he goes it was just amazing to see how he could just could transform but he just needed to do it even on awakenings um you know him and De Niro, De Niro and him were friends and he was like to be able to work with bob was so great and he goes like that was a film that really showed his dramatic chops even though good morning vietnam i thought he had some great dramatic moments along with being hysterically funny i i, I rewatched good morning vietnam the other day i saw like the last 30 minutes of it like amazing like i'd forgotten so many of the one-liners and barry levinson has said he just turned the camera on just go like it was just robin ad-libbing improvising um, and they talk about his personal life. You know, he, he, there's a story, Elaine Boozler, who he was dating, who was a stand up, uh, there in, um, uh, in Hollywood with Letterman and all those guys. She knew that Robin was actually seeing a girl in San Francisco as well. And he said, one day Leno went to Robin and was like, Hey man, why don't you just tell Elaine, like, you know, you got a girlfriend in San Fran. Like we all know it. And he's like, ah, you know, whatever. And Leno's like, no, I, I, listen, we all know. Like, I think you just tell her. And Robin said, Hey man, I'm just looking for some balance. And Leno said, okay, that's fine, but you're using your penis as a fulcrum. Like a, <laughs> <laughs> great line he eventually ended up marrying that girl in san francisco uh she's featured in the film she talks about robin the relationship together they got divorced ended up marrying a nanny somebody had tweeted me they go did they talk with the nanny and the first wife says that she goes it's a little bit unfair the story became robin williams leaves his wife for family nanny what happened is we were divorced and estranged and then he started seeing the nanny it sounds different when uh you put it in that context what's that so it wasn't Affleck. Yeah, yeah, correct. It wasn't quite that respect. Uh, but they talk about comic relief and, and the best interview, of course, is Billy Crystal because he knew him so well. And he tells so many stories about their relationship. Uh, and amidst all this humor and all these dramatic, look, they don't even mention insomnia, which is one of my favorite Robin Williams performances. Um, and here's what's really telling. Somebody at the Q and A, because Marina was there, the director, they said, you didn't show when he won the Oscar for Goodwill Hunting. You didn't show a speech. Yet you showed a speech at the Critics' Choice Awards when he lost to Jack Nicholson for About Schmidt and Daniel Day Lewis for Gangs of New York. And it's amazing the clip that she shared. It's like a good two minutes. You gotta look it up because Nicholson goes up there and he goes, Robin, come up here and do me. So Robin goes up there and starts being Nicholson, accepting the award, then starts taking shots, the Critics' Choice Awards for not giving him the award, then starts being self deprecating. And then he's making fun of everybody in the room. Like it was amazing. And she goes, that was Robin. Like he would take a moment of pain and sadness and completely upend it and make him funny. And it was also therapeutic, but it was brilliant. I'm so um, glad you saw that. You know, he was one of my dad's favorite people to interview. I always remember my dad the night before Robin interview would be going through his notes and preparing and doing research and asking him questions that nobody else would ask him. And then he'd come home and I'd say, Dad, how was the interview? And he said, it was great. It just went all out the window because Robin just goes on a tangent and can take a question about Danny Kay and turn it into a five-minute bit. And, uh, yeah, I always enjoyed my dad's interviews w with, with Robin Williams. And, and I told you, Adnan, the story of when Robin died, how I found out I was hosting the live stream 
of The Giver, that movie with Jeff uh, Bridges and Taylor Swift based on a novel a few years ago. And right before we're going live, we're doing an hour from the red carpet, Katie Holmes, the whole thing. And my producer in my ear says, Robin Williams has passed away. We don't know how. Just want to let you know before you go live in case it comes up. Here I am thinking, okay, that's awful. How is this going to come up in any way? Sure enough, Jeff Bridges comes up on the podium and just starts weeping in my arms on live TV. Like, just lost it from the Fisher King. And, 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 and that was such a, a, a tender and real moment. And we, he collected himself and he spoke eloquently about his friendship with Robin and how sad he was, but then switched gears and was able to get through it. And then, uh, I got back to LA and about a week later, I had a handwritten note from Jeff Bridges saying, thank you so much for helping me through that moment. All of Hollywood is, is healing right now. And, and it's true. You know, when you, when you lose someone like that, the way you lost Robin Williams and, and you mentioned all those films and how many people he collaborated with and touched. It is a part of Hollywood dying as well. There's an innocence that is lost because behind all the joy, behind all the comedy, behind all the great memories, there's obviously someone who's in a tremendous amount of pain and, and Hollywood doesn't always put their arms around people while they're here. So I wonder, and I'm, I haven't seen the film yet. So Adnan, you tell me, is there some kind of healing part of the film or is it just sort of shining a light on this incredible talent that was taken way too soon. Yeah, I would say it was the latter. I think it's definitely shining a, a light and, and a deep appreciation for his work and just how wide-ranging it was. Like This was a guy who, of course, excelled in comedy, but stand-up was brilliant. And then the dramatic films that he did. He was always stretching, trying new things. Um, you know, some of the films obviously didn't work, you know, Father's Day, Billy Crystal, like he's, he's got obviously Smoochie. a, right. Yeah. I was going to say there's, there's, there's a litany of bombs, toys that are in there as well. But even but a like, movie like Jack, you go back and watch and he's doing something there that Coppola. wasn't really appreciated at the time. Yeah. Shocking. Him and Coppola together. You're right. Um, but yeah, I mean, listen, Dan, if someone says to you, Robin Williams, how do you, what are your favorite movies of Robin Williams? What are the movies you think of? What make, what do you think of? You hear his name. I mean, I think of Goodwill Hunting just because I was listening to a podcast about it just yesterday. That's the first one that comes to mind for me. I mean, he was the genie in Aladdin. Patch Adams, not a great movie, but I thought he was pretty good in it. I didn't, I never saw Flubber, but that comes to mind. I mean, Good Morning Vietnam, you guys already mentioned that one. That's great. Jack, you guys mentioned. Uh, yeah, just so many. I, Insomnia, you made me watch. He was really good. A little chilling in that one. Yeah, great. Fan of stand up? Because I did get a tweet from a guy who goes, his stand up wasn't great. He just talked really fast. No, but you go and watch those comic relief things, and 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 they're so funny. He's so good, and he's just so quick. I saw Russell Brand do stand up the other day, and you can see Robin Williams's influence on someone like Russell, where they're just moving so quickly, and just and it's incredible improv with preparation and just talent. And yeah, he. I'm so happy you went and saw that on Saturday morning, Ricky. What do you think of Robin Williams? What do you think of? Well, you've left out one glaring omission, something from my childhood when I was five years old and it came out was Mrs. Doubtfire. Uh, great movie. Listen, Colin Cowherd used to always say that was like his favorite comedy and he could kill for it, but it's a great movie. But that also uh, employs the Ben's point, like his manic energy came out in that where he's playing a whole bunch of different pieces. And when he's doing the makeup scene with Harvey Firestein and going through all the different looks and all those little characters just keep coming out and the, with the employment office woman where he just keeps doing all the little things like, I'm so happy to be in America, but don't ask me for my green card. And he's doing all these little bits, just keeps going, keeps going, keeps going. As a kid, I'm going funny voices, haha. As an adult rewatching, I'm going, holy crap, there's some, there's some stuff there. Like, and you rewatch and you, and you go back and watch a stand up and it's very deep and very prepared, even though he's, obviously just drank about a pot of coffee and maybe done some other stuff as well. Well, yeah, and they mentioned the substance abuse, and they were like, could you imagine Robin Williams, like when him and Belushi were going out, like, oh, they were God. crushing it. Like, like, dude, imagine Robin Williams the way he is, then on cocaine, you're like, good God. 
Like on a serious note, they're like, once Belushi died, Robin's like, all right, that's it. Like, cause, cause he was out with them, like all the time. They were, they, I mean, they're going after it. So it was crazy. Definitely check it out. HBO hasn't announced a release date, but they're looking like the summer. Robin Williams, come inside my mind. That was the best film that I saw at Sundance. Ben, the floor is yours. Speaking of documentaries and speaking of HBO documentaries, I had the chance to see Believer. It's from Dan Reynolds, the lead singer of Imagine Dragons. He is Mormon. He's from Utah. He's straight. But he recognized that the Mormon church has turned their back and persecuted the gay community. And there are young teenage gay Mormons out there who are killing themselves. And Dan had an, has had enough. And he decided to put on a music festival. He did a documentary with the lead singer of Neon Trees, a guy named Tyler Glenn, who is also Mormon and is gay and has been out as a more as a gay Mormon for a, a few years now. And Dan reached out to him, looked to him as an inspiration, and it was really incredible, Adnan, to see the film, to then do a Q&A with Dan, the director, Don Argot, and Heather Perry, who's an old friend of mine from Live Nation, who's been putting together these music docs, like the Diddy one, the Gaga one, and now this Imagine Dragons one, um, to do it in Utah, and to have the Q&A in Utah about Mormonism, and I don't know if you spent time in Utah, you can really feel the presence of the Mormon church for Regardless if you're around people who believe in 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 Mormonism, um, the, the the city of Salt Lake, every city in Utah is laid out in terms of how far away you live or how far away you are from the church at the center of the town. Um, and Dan Reynolds is, is just an amazing guy. And the movie's coming out in June or July. If you're a fan of Imagine Dragons, uh, you will really appreciate seeing this side of one of your favorite rock stars. So that, to me, I think was the best documentary I saw at Sundance. I saw another one, Studio 54, the legendary nightclub that was only open for 33 months. Ian Schrager, who's the hotel you know, guy now, was a, a founder with Steve uh, Lobel. And, and I was just praying not to see my mom in the background, Adnan. I was just hoping. I was like, don't see Judy Lyons in the background at Studio 54. I don't want to see my mom in the balcony. Like, I just, I can't. I can't handle that. And luckily, she she did not pop up in the film. But, uh, you know, they didn't have a liquor license the first eight months. They were filling daily catering notes. Every day, they'd apply for a new catering permit. And then the city was like, uh, wait a minute. This is the biggest nightclub in the world. What are you guys doing? So that was a fun documentary. And then another one, Hal, about Hal Ashby uh, from director oh, nice. Amy Scott. Hal Ashby, of course, you know, directed Shampoo and Harold and Maude and, and did a, 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 had a run of seven or eight films, The Landlord, that were truly, I mean, right there in terms of the, the great films of the 70s and was also an editor and just a big pot smoker and a really creative artist that was celebrated through this film, Hal. Um, what else did I see at Sundance? Oh, two, I saw two sports movies. I saw, I saw a film called The Rider directed by Chloe Zhao that is the story of a bull rider, a guy named Brady Jandro. Um, Brady plays himself in the movie. Brady's dad plays himself in the movie. Brady's sister, Lily, who's living with autism, plays herself in the movie. And it's about a bull rider who falls off a bull, has brain surgery. The movie opens with him taking the staples out of his head. And he's at this crossroads in his life of, should I get back on the bull? If I don't get on the bull, will I be living a life I'm proud of? This world of wild horses in South Dakota and bull riding, it's a dying world. And is he holding on to it? And the director, Chloe, does such a wonderful job of bringing you into this world with the real people. But it's not a documentary. It's a scripted movie. 
absolutely incredible. It played at Cannes, nominated for some spirits this year, and played at Sundance and is coming out in April. So kind of an unusual rollout for the film, but... One of the great sports movies I've seen in recent years. I really enjoyed The Rider, and I loved a film called The Last Race, a documentary about the last racetrack in Long Island. Apparently, in the 50s and 60s, stock car racing was a huge thing in Long Island with over 50 tracks. Now there's one in Riverhead, which is at the fork in Long Island, right before you go off in the south shore to the Hamptons. So it's kind of this gateway into, obviously, the Hamptons, which is such a lavish and ridiculous place. This racetrack is owned by these two old people. People who are just hanging on and they refuse to sell the land and it's done by director Michael Dweck with an artistic approach that is really intoxicating and it's just a great portrait of American rural life. It's called The Last Race. Again, I think it could get nominated for an Oscar. Um, you've seen that the last couple years with The Last Days in Vietnam and The Last Man in Aleppo. So if you're a documentary at Sundance with last in the title, you have a good chance of going on and getting an Oscar nomination. And last but not least, I saw Ophelia with my buddy Tom Felton, who I love. He's barely in the movie, thank God, because this is a poorly conceived, poorly executed story of Hamlet from the female perspective. Daisy Ridley plays Ophelia. Naomi Watts um, can't save the movie when you have Clive Owen in a wig riding in on horseback and you go, okay, what is? what are we doing here for the next hour and a half? So, disappointed with Ophelia. And last but not least, quick review here for Tyrell. I loved it. Director Sebastian Silva. This is like the indie get-out. Jason Mitchell plays a guy who goes to a cabin in the woods for two or three days with a group of childhood friends, Michael, Sarah, Caleb Landry Jones, who's in Three Billboards and Get Out and Florida Project. Great actor. So it's about Jason Mitchell, this black guy, living in uh, this house in the woods for two or three days with a group of childhood white friends, Christopher Abbott from Girls. And it just shows you the social awkwardness or how uncomfortable he is or how sometimes people can be casually racist without even knowing it. It's the indie get out. It's called Tyrell. Jason Mitchell knocks it out of the park, a movie that stayed with me long after I saw it. So there are the 14 films. Oh, and I saw Monster 2 produced by John Legend. Very good film with Jeffrey Wright and Jennifer Hudson about a, a young boy who's involved in a murder. And it's the court case of, is he guilty? Is he not guilty? Is his, does, you know, how do we interpret him? We see him as a monster, but turns out he's a really good guy. And da, da, da. Great movie directed by Anthony Manler. So yeah, those are my 14 films at Sundance. Amazing that you saw 14 movies, Ben. I saw eight. We didn't see The Tale, which got a lot of buzz. Laura Dern apparently is sensational in that movie. But right? that's the thing, right? You can't chase the cool. That one sold to HBO for $7 bucks, and, and we'll get a chance to see it, obviously. But they didn't see a movie about horse They didn't see a movie about Persian weightlifters eating vegetables. So <laughs> you kind of just get what you get at Sundance. <laughs> you are the man. Ben Lyons' interviews you'll hear on the next podcast. Now it's time to hear the interviews I gathered at Sundance. First up, Nicolas Cage. A second time at Sundance, what have you noticed about the festival and how it's changed since you were here last time? I, I don't think it's changed much. I mean, it's still the same uh, very sincere group of film enthusiasts who are uh, taking their movies seriously, waiting out in the snow to get tickets, and uh, are, are proudly cinephiles. I mean, it's, it's a, a wonderful festival to be invited to because... Uh, I came out of independent cinema, but I've only been... This is the first time I've ever had a movie premiere here, and I, I'm, I'm very thankful. Nick, next year will be the 20th anniversary of a movie, which I love, Bringing Out the Dead. And oh, I thought great. you oh, gave yeah. such a soulful performance working with Scorsese, and I, I think people should recognize it more often. What was it like working with Marty on that movie? 
Uh, Marty is a, um, a very vivacious, and uh, he's got a tremendous amount of zeal about him, and he's a kind man. I mean, he, he really is. He loves, he, he breathes, he, he, his whole life is film. And um, he was so thoughtful, and he would give me movies to watch, and he let me use his screening room in New York, and I remember it was my birthday, and... Uh, I, he said he had a he had a cut of uh, Mask of the Red Death, and um, uh, he showed me this beautiful version of the movie, and uh, it was very touching. You know, I, to work with someone who loves movies that much, and has 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 been a protector of cinema for so long is uh, it was it was one of the best experiences of my life. Last one, Nick. Uh, adaptation. I just adore that movie. I've always been curious, which character is more fun to play, Charlie or the brother? Um, you know, it's, it's a great question because when people talk about the movie and they, and they say, I really love Donald, I get jealous. I, I was like, well, Donald, I, I, I thought I was Charlie. I don't even remember playing Donald. So it's like, I mean, you, I don't know why they – it's just weird. I had a great time playing both of them, but I, I really connected with the Charlie character. And Donald is almost like I don't remember doing it. All right, so the great news is at the end of the interview, Nick smiles and says, well, how about it? How about the sports guy knowing more about film than all these other guys? And I'm like, all right, yes, why wasn't I still recording? That would have been gold. Could have run that as the open. Uh, but he was really nice. He goes, no, seriously, he goes, nobody's mentioned bringing out the dead to me in so long, and I love that film. And I'm like, Nick, I'm telling you, I just watched it again recently. Soulful, different. I mean, it was really impactful. And I go, the problem is people kept thinking another taxi driver, a vehicle late at night, written by Schrader, directed by Scorsese. It was a different story. He's like, yeah, yeah, for sure. And then I hear someone call me over, and it's Nick Cage's manager um, who said, hey, listen, Adnan, let's you get a card. Let's let's keep in touch, get contact information. I'm sure Nick would love to listen to the interview. So I'm like, that's great. So fingers crossed. Hopefully the next Nick Cage movie, we got to get him on here. We're going to talk about what movies, Dan, do you want to ask Nicolas Cage about? Con Air. Con Air we're going to ask him about? And The Rock. The Rock, we will get in. For you, Connor, The Rock, I will get in, Leaving Las Vegas, Honeymoon in Vegas. Moonstruck, maybe? <laughs> Moonstruck, I love, of course. Seth Greenberg's favorite. We'll get that as well. So thanks to Nick. Like I said, he was intimidating, but a really cool guy, and it was awesome to meet him and talk to him because I'm such a fan of his work. Another guy that I'm a huge fan of, Ethan Hawke. Dan well knows, and all the listeners of the podcast well know, I had two of his top films, uh, two of his films in my top ten of last year, uh, which I mentioned to him in this interview. So he's promoting a film called Blaze, which he's directing. Uh, it's about a singer-songwriter who I guess was kind of overlooked and but was actually quite um, instrumental in a lot of country music artists' careers. Uh, so I have not seen the film. I was there for the uh, press row lineup for it, and I was a little bit worried because we were right at the end of it. But thanks to Sarah Serlin, she's awesome. She hooked us up with a spot in the line, and Ethan was great. He's very gracious, uh, you know, talks to everybody, gives him, gives um, everybody his full attention. And as you can take a listen, I not only asked him about Blaze, but a couple other films as well. All right, Ethan, uh, you've been one of my favorite actors for a long time, Academy Award nominated for acting, for your writing. What was it about this you chose to make your directorial debut? Well, um, I've been directing since as a kid, too. You know, I had my first film uh, as a director here at Sundance in 1994. I directed a short film, and I ran a theater company. And so it's kind of like I'm a professional actor, and I direct for love. Well, it's amazing because you have that skill set. Even the, the subjects that you choose are all over the place. Like you, you don't really get defined by genre. Uh, although I think music is always something that's very important to you and your characters. What is it about music? You know, I guess it's my first love. You know, it's it, it's the way we communicate with each other non-verbally. It's the way. I mean, one thing like I always loved about 
Willie Nelson is that, you know, people on the right love Willie Nelson, people on the left love it. He can actually communicate. And then you realize, well, we're not all as different as we thought. We all love the red-headed stranger. The, you know, we, we, there's so much in this world that's dividing us. You know, and music is one of those great tools that brings us together. I loved your uh, role in Boyhood. It was so great. And, and I said to my wife, I said, what a good daddy is. He's trying to spend time with his son, playing music. She goes, I like Ethan Hawke a lot, but I think he's a terrible dad. He's, he's so negligent. He just cares about his own music. And I think that's part of the charm of that. Two people can see that movie and have a totally different read of your character. Absolutely. I remember Patricia Arquette used to use this expression that said, everybody in this life has blind spots. We all think we're doing well. We're all trying to do our best. But we have blind spots. And aspects of ourselves that we can't see we don't know what glasses our tails knocking over sometimes and I think that movie is very wise about that you could say the same thing about the mother character in some ways she's a wonderful mother in some ways she's you know a terrible mother Two of the best movies of 2016, Born to be Blue. I bought the soundtrack right away. Great job. I'm Canadian, so it was shot in Canada, I know. I love that movie. I love that music. And new characters, just so heartbreaking. And then The Phenom, working at ESPN. I thought that was a great sports movie. You know, isn't it funny that I, you know, I was really proud of that movie, too. And I, I thought that movie would find more life than it did. And I, I don't quite know why... It was funny, one person, I think I saw on a Google alert or somebody, somebody put it as one of the best movies of 2016, but most people didn't even register it, and it's a... It's a wonderful film. Yeah. I'm really proud of it. Working as a sportscaster, Ethan, I see guys like that all the time, crumbling under pressure, Johnny Manziel types, and your character, Giamatti, like that. Your guy is just so abusive and so reckless. But again, you can see guys that are saying, listen, I'm doing this because I love you. I'm doing this to help you. I know. I, I was really, I think that movie is extraordinarily well written. And the young man who plays the main guy, Johnny Simmons, does a beautiful performance. Giamatti, I mean, I, I really hope that people see that movie. You're one of the best actors going, Ethan. Thanks for the time, man. Okay. Be well. After that, you know, I, I got to tell you, I have such appreciation for actors because it's like there's so much song and dance to this. Like Ethan and I, we do the interview, and he was awesome, as you just heard. And then he's going to, like, do these, like, poses and stills and stuff. And it's like you, you don't understand how much, like, song and dance these actors have to go through. I, I honestly, it's it's I get a sense of it, you know, covering sports, obviously seeing athletes. But it's not the same as, all right, Ethan, smile here. Now look to the left. Lower your chin. Okay, now hold this picture. Now do this. Da, 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 da. It's unbelievable. But after that, I was like, I got a picture, please. He's like, yeah, for sure. So Ethan Hawke was awesome. My thanks to him and the entire team. I hope Blaze is a huge success. Just a quick addendum to that. So Alia Shakat who, of course, is maybe in Arrested Development, is a part of the film. When she'd gone through the line initially, I didn't get a chance to grab her, uh, interview her, and that's when we got Hawk first. And then as she was walking out, I just said, Alia, and she's like, yeah. And she looked down because they have the signs there. She saw ESPN. She goes, I don't know anything about sports. I said, no, don't worry. I'm not going to ask you about sports. She goes, okay, cool. So now take a listen. This is the 30 seconds I was able to get of Alia before she had to go into the movie. All right, Alia, tell me about Blaze and what was the appeal for you with this film? Um, I love this movie. I love Blaze Foley, and I'm a big fan of Ethan Hawke, so I'm excited to make it, yeah. What was it like being directed by Ethan? It was the best. He's a really inspirational filmmaker and really great with actors being one, and takes his time and is so creative and all the good things. I love seeing your work because we love you so much in Arrested Development. What can you tell us about the new season? Not much. The whole family's back together, and they're still stuck in a state of Arrested Development, that's for sure. <laughs> Thanks so much. Good luck with the movie. Thank you very much. So thanks to Alia Shaka for giving us a little bit of that. Arrested Development, yes, yeah, Stair Car will be back at some point in time. Uh, just to circle back to a film that we didn't get a chance to see. Again, early on, you heard me and Ben mention what happened with, with Paul Rudd and Paul Giamatti. So we were waiting there for the movie called The Catcher Was a Spy. 
Um, I was not able to make the screening because I was felled by the uh, parent tonsil abscess. But I was able to fight through just to meet Paul Rudd. And he and Paul Giamatti came out. And, of course, Giamatti is one of my favorite actors. And I'm a huge fan of Rudd as well. And they were gracious, taking pictures and everything. And then Rudd just, you know, Giamatti just ducked out, as you heard me and Ben mention. He just, just like, all right, it's been fun. And then Paul Rudd kind of stood there and was like, hey, can I grab you? And then as you hear now, he is a genuine Kansas City Royals fan. And he's very proud of this film. All right, here with Paul Rudd. Uh, listen, obviously you're a huge baseball fan. What was it about this story? It almost feels like I'm amazed. It hasn't been told yet. It's so ripe with suspense. Well, it's an incredible story. I didn't know much about Mo Berg until this reading this script, and uh, then I Googled him to see, this can't be real, and uh, found out it's very real, and what a fascinating figure. Uh, obviously, you love the game of baseball, like I said. Uh, you know, how much fun was it to actually, you know, squat behind the, the mail, the plate, excuse me, and actually, you know, get to do some real-life baseball scenes and kind of live out a fantasy, I'm sure, in some ways. Yeah, I mean, it's there's baseball and World War II. It's kind of uh, a dream. And we shot at Fenway, and I got to uh, kind of, you know, crouch behind the home plate at, at Fenway. And uh, just that in and of itself was amazing. But then to... Uh, have on, you know, the old Red Sox uniform playing Mo Berg and looking at pictures of Mo Berg at Fenway and then looking at, you know, like, oh my God, there are the beans from this picture. This is right where he was standing. Right. Uh, just from a historical perspective, that was really exciting. As a lifelong Royals fan, how pumped were you after that 30-year wait when you guys finally won the World Series? Back-to-back World Series appearances. Oh, I mean, it was, uh, it was incredible. I, re- I reacted, it, I, my reaction was even more emotional and stronger than I would have predicted. Um, you know, I remember in 85 when they did it, and then uh, to have so many years in the cellar, to then come out and, and actually do it, do it again, was uh, incredible. Favorite Royal all-time? Uh, Willie Wilson. Great speed, great defensive play. I just want to know if you're a pine tar denier. Do you think George Brett used pine tar or not? <laughs> well... Uh, he did use he did use pine tar. Too much? No, I mean I think that that it was even reversed. It's like, no, give me a break. Yeah, he did. The, the pine tar didn't do anything. Yeah, thanks so much, Paul. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so thanks to Paul Rudd. You know, Ben Lyons has such good context, man. I'm telling you, as soon as as soon as they see Ben, they light up. Like Rudd was fine the first few answers, but as you heard Ben there at the end mention George Brett and the pine tar, then it's like, ah, oh, hey, Lyons, what's up, man? PR people, they all know Ben. They're all so happy to see him. He's that guy that you always want to have. Uh, unfortunately, as we mentioned in the previous pod, the catcher was a spy not getting good reviews. I don't know if it's going to get distribution. I asked Ben afterwards, I go, so what happens when they don't make a sale? And he goes, eventually they'll get something, but he goes, it's just going to get a limited release. It'll get, like, you know, it's, it's almost like a straight to DVD. He goes, with Paul Rudd, Paul Giamatti, you're going to get a deal, but it, it's going to be tough to recoup the money. They might just dump it like in a quiet weekend in June. Like it's, it's one of those. And I was like, oh, it's too bad because Rudd was such a good guy. Uh, last of the interviews I want you to listen to, this is the movie that I talked about earlier, The Game Changers, which is about plant-based protein and all those myths around it. So Luis Sohoyos is the director. As I mentioned earlier, he's the guy who won the Oscar for The Cove, which is a tremendous documentary. I recommended it before on streaming. Uh, so you'll hear Louis first, and then you'll hear James Wilkes. He is the MMA fighter who is at the heart of this documentary, trying to expose myths around healthy eating and such. What is it about the story that really appealed to you? This guy here, um, you know, it's a it's a film that you know I, I work in environmental issues and uh, trying to use film to change the game to um, to not just you know get filled with theater, but to try to change society. And I think this is the probably the the simplest best way that I found is to 
tell James the story. It's actually his story. Uh, uh, Joseph Pace and, mm-hmm. and James had come up with this idea, and it's a, it's really you know we've been trying to you know, get people to realize that they have they can have an impact on things that really matter, their own health, or um, you know certainly when you look at food and its relationship to climate change, uh, you know it's the most it's, just, it's the one thing that people can do every single day, three times a day. They can you know change what they eat, and this film is uh, it, it cuts at a core myth that's probably responsible for you know more pollution than anything in the world it's uh responsible for you know it's, 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 i mean it's hard, hard to say it, it, it impacts it's related this relationship to uh to killing more humans on the on the planet now mm-hmm. you know heart disease and stroke is uh is now irrefutable so i think it's a it's a way to get wake, wake people up to to be to get them to do the ultimate change the easiest James, working for ESPN, I work with former football players, baseball, basketball, everyone's always talking about protein, eat their chicken, eat their beef with salad, etc. And then this documentary comes along, this completely demystifies or demythifies it's just so people think. What would you say to all these people at ESPN after that work? seem to think that if you're chicken, meat, those are staples of uh, somebody who's in really good shape from their diet. Yeah, I mean, that's something we've been led to believe. And I certainly believe that myself. I walked into a vegan restaurant seven years ago, realized it was a vegan restaurant, and turned around. I mean, I thought I had to eat animal foods every meal of the protein. Which is simply not true. We've just been led to believe this for you know, years and years of propaganda and marketing from the meat and the products industry. And it's complete BS. Animals are just the middleman. All protein originates in plants. So uh, it just totally blew my mind when I found this out and felt like I wanted to share that with the world and make a documentary. Is part of your motivation just the fact that animal cruelty exists, or is it just the fact that you want people to be healthy in the healthiest way possible? No, actually, it's, it's neither of those. My, well, my primary motivation originally was quite selfish. I, I, I tore uh, some ligaments in my knees, uh, training with a future heavyweight champion, had about 80 pounds on me, and thought, I've got six months, what should I do and so I started looking to uh, optimal diet for performance and recovery and realized that you know you can actually get improved blood flow improve, uh, reduced inflammation faster recovery on a plant-based diet and so later on you know the, the health became an issue as well and the environment and the animals those are all issues as well but I think it's hitting so many sectors and it's, it's really quite simple and something we can do every day what do you tell somebody who wants to make a change but they feel like this is too overwhelming to what do you say to that I think it is overwhelming to try and make drastic changes that you've been doing your whole life and so I think we're not trying to say in the film change your diet we're not trying to say anything all we're trying to do is dispel myths and give people the information so they can make their own informed decisions and uh, I would say if you're going to make a change make it slowly you know maybe do a meatless Mondays and then you'll start finding rather than feeling that you're excluding products is that you're just starting to eat more and more plant-based meals that taste great that are fueling your body efficiently you feel better you feel more energy and you'll just that'll just start pushing out those other animal products so it's not exclusion it's just a slow gradual inclusion of the plant so thanks to Luis Hoyos and James Wilkes. Both those guys were great. I would have liked to talk to Louis about the Cove, the way it was set up. Again, as you can tell by the uh, slapdash nature of these, you literally take like a media scrum. You just throw in one question, you get your one question, you get out. Obviously, all the media is converging together. But I would have loved to ask uh, Louis about the Cove, but I did like his answers there. And James Wilkes talking about having a meatless Monday and stuff like that. So listen, thanks so much to Nicholas Cage, Ethan Hawke, Paul Rudd, Alia Shawkat, Luis Sahoyos, James Wilkes uh, for their fabulous time and for being so generous. And I hope to see uh, the films that I haven't seen of theirs, like Mandy and Blaze and The Catcher Was a Spy. I hope to see that. And I definitely recommend The Game Changers. 
All right. Thanks so much to Ben Lines telling those stories, but all those movies that we saw at Sundance. On the next episode of Cinephile, we saw Black Panther together. He was at the Oscars luncheon, talked to Willem Dafoe. I've got stories of hanging out with Chef Wolfgang Puck. All that more, plus Ben's interviews from Sundance, Black Eyed Peas, Imagine Dragons, and many more. Until then, we'll see you at the movies. Don't miss out on the next episode of Cinephile. Subscribe to the Adnan Ferk Movie Podcast by clicking the Listen tab in the ESPN app. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.